Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. This is episode four, Charles in Charge. Maps are really fun things to look at. If you're anything at all like us, you've no doubt spent way too much time just looking at Google Maps, scrolling around the globe, virtually crossing all of the borders, imagining what exactly is happening over there or over there on the other side of the world. I'm sorry, flat earthers, but the world is a globe. And considering three dimensions are generally more interesting than two, we are better off for it. Take a look at a topographical map and you'll see that the earth is not flat in pretty much every way it is possible to be not flat. Besides being spherical, when you zoom in, it has mountains and valleys, which along with rivers create natural borders to anyone who is trying to go across them. If you look at Europe, you'll see that right in the middle of it is a gigantic mountain range called the Alps. Not surprisingly, this is where a lot of countries have their borders with each other. France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Austria. Mountains present an obstacle to people moving across land, but if so inclined, and with enough determination, even armies may manage to walk over them. Hannibal apparently crossed the Alps with elephants, which is crazy. We've never managed to take an elephant anywhere. Walking over mountains is hard. It takes so much effort, climbing up and down and up and down. If you've got bad knees, just forget about it. People prefer things which take less effort. And do you know what is easier than walking over a mountain? Going around one. So look at that topographical map of Europe again. Focus on the western part and you'll see that France has a large and relatively flat area moving from the southwest to the northeast of the country. Now look at Germany. Germany also has plains in the north, moving east-west. In this part of the world, these relatively flat areas are the easiest paths for people to take. In the Middle Ages, around the 8th and 9th centuries, whether you were a merchant or artist or a monk or a diplomat, if you didn't feel like climbing over a mountain, you had to go across these plains. More importantly, if you were a general who needed to move a massive body of people, such as an army, in a hurry, you were probably going to take them across these plains rather than over the mountains. And so, where do these plains of France and Germany meet each other? Where do the territories of these two giants of Europe naturally crash into each other? They do so in the Low Countries, in our beloved little swamp, which itself is also the point where land and water themselves crash into each other. It is in more ways than one the actual crossroads of Western Europe, stuck between the two great continental powers on one side and the sea on the other. Oh, and just to make matters even more interesting, to the west, across that sea, there's a great big island, close enough to be seen on a clear day, which soon enough will aspire to an increase of power of its own, England. But that won't be relevant to us for a while. 
In the last episode, we saw how the Franks and the Frisians had battled for domination over the Lowlands in the 7th and 8th centuries, and how Frankish warlord Charles Martel had begun expanding north across the Rhine into Frisian territory. At the same time, Christianity was finally taking a firm hold, not only in the south of the Lowlands, but also in the remote and indefatigable Friesland of the north with almost the whole population, granted it wasn't that many people, converted by the 780s. This had all happened in the vacuum that had followed the collapse of the Roman Empire and the subsequent great waves of migration across the continent. Coming into the 700s, the varying peoples around northwestern Europe, despite however they may have seen themselves, came to be mostly in either the Frankish or Frisian cultural dominions, separated by the border that was the Rhine. As we explained in episode 3, the Merovingian dynasty which ruled over the Franks had by this time become little more than ceremonial figureheads, and power actually lay in the hands of Charles Martel, whose designation was Major Domo, Mayor of the Palace. Eventually, the Merovingian kings had become so useless, and the Mayor of the Palace so influential, that Charles Martel's second son, called Pepin the Short, who had had an ecclesiastical upbringing and was about as Christian as they come, paid a visit to Pope Zachary I and asked him whether it was a proper state of things that he should have all this power and not be king, whilst the king himself actually had no power. The Pope went, yeah, bloody oath, you're right. In not quite those words or tone, but he gave his approval for Pepin to go and deposed the Merovingian king, Childeric II, who was promptly sent to a monastery to live out his days and die. And Pepin had himself anointed by Saint Boniface as king of the Franks, the first in a new dynasty that would become known as the Carolingian. As far as usurpations go, this one was rather smooth and apparently approved by God himself. To ram this point home, a couple of years later, Pope Stephen II travelled all the way to Paris and anointed Pepin as King of the Franks a second time. Although Pepin had begun a new dynasty, he was still a Frank, and the Franks still had that custom of dividing their lands up between their sons. Brothers tend to be super competitive with each other over even the most trivial of things, like Mario Kart or food. Give them armies instead of a Nintendo 64? and make their playground Europe, and their plaything its people, and things can get pretty brutal. When Pepin died, his kingdom was divided amongst his living sons, Charles and Carloman, with each getting half of his land. Tensions grew between the two brothers, and they were on the brink of war with each other when, conveniently, in 771, Carloman died. All of a sudden, Charles became the sole ruler of his father's former kingdom and immediately set out to expand it further. After over 50 battles, many of which he led himself, he succeeded in claiming almost the entire mainland of modern-day Europe. It's no wonder that he is now best known in every language as Charles the Great, Karl der Grosse, Carlo Magno, Charlemagne. On Christmas Eve, 800, Charlemagne was in Rome, visiting the Pope, who, besides having a bad case of invasive Lombards, also had an unruly local uprising forming against him. 
he had sought the Frankish king's assistance. According to legend, as Charlemagne knelt in prayer in the old St. Peter's Basilica, the Pope jumped out from nowhere, wielding an imperial crown. He placed it on Charles's head and made him the new Roman Emperor. Ta-da! Again, this is not a history of Rome podcast, and how this fits into the East-West schism of the old Roman Empire is not of interest to us. What is important, though, is that the idea of Rome, even nearly 400 years after the sack of the city by Alaric and his Visigoths, was still strong and important enough that this investiture of Charlemagne was enough to solidify his legitimacy as the new ruler of Western Europe. The doctrine by which the Pope entitled himself to do this was called Translatio Imperii, which is the idea that the power of the Roman Emperor can be passed on in a linear way, via God. So basically, the power of the last Roman Emperor was carried across time and space, by God, via the Pope, who was Leo III at the time, and placed onto the shoulders of Charlemagne. Charlemagne's empire stretched from the Atlantic Ocean and the North Sea in the west and northwest to the rivers Elba and Danube in the east and southeast. It basically encompassed almost all of modern-day France, little bits of northern Spain, all of the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg, Switzerland, Austria, the north of Italy, down into the Balkans and huge parts of Germany. His neighbours were the Slavs in the east, the Saxons and the Danes in the north, the Emirate of Cordoba in the Iberian Peninsula, the Lombards in Italy, and the Pope. Basically, that's why he is called, rather misogynistically and paying homage only to the Game of Thrones history of Europe, the father of the continent. It was a vast territory inhabited by scores of different groups, loosely tied together under labels like the Franks but separated by their particular river, forest, coastal, mountain, or town-based cultures. These included the Saxons, Aquitanians, Lombards, Jews, Bohemians, Slavs, Croats, and Avars, among many others. Their languages, diverse across Charlemagne's empire, mostly derived from the Proto-Germanic and Gallic tribal cultures which had moved and merged with each other during the Great Migration, but with varying influences of Latin, remnant from the Roman administrative structures. In the lowlands, although local dialects would have existed as they do today, Old Lower Franconian, otherwise known as Old Dutch, had become the dominant language. Simultaneously, there was also Old Frisian, and Old Saxon being spoken in those respective regions. So, by the end of the 8th century, Charlemagne had garnered for himself the biggest European empire since Rome. But, as the great 20th century philosopher, Notorious B.I.G., would have said, were he a medieval feudalistic warlord, mo empire, mo problems. Here we see the beginnings of what would become the feudal system. It grew out of Charlemagne's need to distribute the power of his vast domains to lower lords, vassals, ruling regions in his name. There's never been an agreed-upon definition of what feudalism completely entailed, and, of course, there were big and small differences across different regions and countries, but, in essence, it was about land and labour, 
and an acculturated power mechanic that welded society at various levels to a complicit agreement on who was in control. Here's an almost ridiculously oversimplified version. Once you had a king or somebody at the pointy end of the power tree, they generally controlled more land than one man could handle, especially in a time where humans could move no faster than a horse and armies no faster than their generals could push them, mainly by foot. So the land in the kingdom would be distributed amongst an elite few who became an aristocracy, dukes, marquises, earls, counts, barons, etc., all of whom went around calling each other and demanding that they be called Lord. These regional rulers then required labor to work the land, and so they had the non-lord masses who sat far below them on the social ladder do the work and compensated them with barely basic human rights, like somewhere to live and a tiny plot of land on which to grow whatever food they could for themselves. There was a hierarchy within the nobility, and sometimes regional rulers who were upper nobility would grant power to someone in the lower nobility below them to rule small areas, take control of castles for instance, and they then exerted even more localized power over the lower peasant class in that area. Taxes went up the ladder, and in what was a continuation of the old mob-like vassal system of ancient Rome, military service and the expenses entailed in warfare would always be required of regional rulers who would foot the bill and send the men of the lower class to fight as infantry. To govern his enormous empire, Charlie Boy made use of other noblemen or great warriors in each area who would control this little bit of his empire in his name and were loyal to him both in word and deed. And so, thus were the fiefdoms of the Middle Ages given a stage on which to first appear and set into motion a near thousand years of power games, during which the machinations of those in charge to gain ever more power and prestige for themselves would take the people of Europe through quite the emotional roller coaster. Charlemagne's vassal system therefore required constant oversight, he became renowned for his ability to move around quickly, to check on the loyalty of his subjects and how well they were administering his policies. To do this, in his huge empire that included these two massive plains stretching from the southwest to the northeast across modern-day France and Germany, Charlemagne had to position himself as centrally as possible, in the most logical location for where the varying cultural and political elements of his great domain collided. And like we said at the beginning, that place is the Lowlands. Charlemagne made his capital at Aachen, also known as Aix-la-Chapelle, which today sits a stone's throw over the border from the Netherlands in Germany. Aachen and the Lowlands were right at the heart of Charlemagne's empire, and so were also the centre of the so-called Carolingian Renaissance a flourishing of the arts and intellectual life of the continent during the time of Charlemagne's rule. Emile Camus, a Belgian playwright, poet, author, and historian, wrote of this time, quote, During the first part of the 9th century, the region of the Scheld and the Meuse, 
became a beehive of activity. From every part of the world, merchants, theologians, artists, and musicians crowded towards the new economic and intellectual center of Europe. Arnon, a pupil of Alcuin, came to El Known, the Irish Sedulius to Liege, the Italian Georges to Valenciennes, while the schools of St. Amand under Huckbold acquired a worldwide reputation. Everywhere new monasteries were established, new churches and palaces built. The arts of illuminating, embroidery, carving and stained glass were brought to an unparalleled degree of perfection and refinement. Bishops and abbots competed in attracting to their courts and monasteries the best-known doctors and poets of the time. End quote. This culture would have radiated out from the centre, stretching across those plains and going up and down rivers, carried in the minds and by the voices of all kinds of people and ever more in the manuscripts and other items they carried, spreading into what would later become France and Germany. Much like Roman culture had spread out from that city, the Carolingian influence spread out from Aachen, leading many scholars to label it as being the second Rome. When in Aachen, do as the Aachenists do, doesn't quite have the same ring to it, however. Neither does all roads lead to Aachen. However, look once more at your map, switch it from satellite to normal view, and you will see that in this area, all the roads do actually lead to Aachen. Charlemagne codified the tax system, supported education and culture, as well as gave proper adherence to the ever-increasing role of the clergy in European life. The church was in boom mode, building cathedrals, abbeys, convents, and much more, where donations in the form of precious stones, metals, relics, and art began to accumulate. Such a bustling and wealthy cultural hotspot, boasting monasteries loaded with lootable goods, ended up drawing the attention of groups of people who really loved looting that kind of stuff. Vikings. It is impossible to look at the early Middle Ages in Western Europe without seeing the effects of a Viking presence. We will assume that you, the listener, know somewhat about them and of the Viking rage that scared the living bejesus out of monks wherever they set foot in Europe and could be argued put Europe into a dark age. Most historians would disagree with the simple notion that Europe ended up in an abyss during this period, as do we. A good point that's been made about Vikings is that rather than doing something new and outrageous as they were depicted as doing in the monasteries, they actually just joined a long-running European-wide game of raid everything you can and take as much as you can. A game that certainly the Franks had already been playing in this part of the world for centuries. The first Viking attack on the Frankish Empire happened in 799. The word Viking as an ethnographic one also isn't really correct. Vikings aren't a group of people or a tribe. They're people who undertake the activity of Viking. To Vike was to raid. More accurately, they were Norsemen, men from the north, around Scandinavia. But we're not going to let accuracy get in the way, so we're just going to continue calling them Vikings. Charlemagne went about creating a Viking defense system along the North Sea coast, with strategically positioned fleets on the lookout. Despite occasional success, 
these defenses could not prevent the Vikings from getting a stronghold in the lowlands, particularly in Friesland and Dorestad, which is the town we spoke about in the previous episode over which the Franks and the Frisians had fought for so long. Charlemagne and his successors, but more importantly the people who were living exposed to the waterways by and up which Vikings would come a-raging, would have to now deal with living in the Middle Ages with a good dollop of angry and violent Scandinavians thrown right in. Charlemagne lived to be pretty old, and being Frankish, prepared his sons to each take over a part of his total inheritance. Over time, they were each given different titles, such as King of Aquitaine, King of Italy, King of Neustria, and they slotted into the vassal system at just one rung below their father. You might have noticed we haven't mentioned their names. This is because a few names are coming your way, and we want to prioritize and economize. Two of them ended up dying in 810 and 811 respectively, so we can just forget about them. Their deaths were extremely convenient for the remaining son of Charlemagne, who would become known as Louis the Pious. He was made co-emperor with his father in 813, and then a year later, Charlemagne went and shook off his own mortal coil, leaving Louis to rule over it all. Louis also had sons. In true Frankish fashion, he also started to give them roles and responsibilities, preparing to divide his lands in their inheritance. These were Pepin, Lothar, Louis II, and Charles which honestly could be mistaken to be the only names that the Franks knew existed. Also in true Frankish fashion, by the 830s, the brothers had all started fighting, not only each other, but also with their father, Louis, the emperor. Between them all, they managed to hold three civil wars over 10 years, during which one of them, Pepin, died. Louis the Pious was even deposed by one of his sons for a short while, but managed to come back and was once more invested as emperor. He came out victorious at the end of the Third Civil War, after which he subsequently fell ill, went to a nice lodge on an island on the Rhine, and died in 840. This, by the way, is something Cersei Lannister didn't take into account during her pithy line of, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. You might lose and not die but instead just go off for a while and come back for another crack or win and then go to some nice lodge on a river and die. Life, it turns out, is even more complicated than George R.R. Martin's story, which is so ridiculously complicated that he's given up on writing it. Speaking of which, that brings us to this week's Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. Our favourite Game of Thrones character is Melisandre played in the show by famous Dutch actress, Carice van Houten. That's right, the Red Woman. Bet you didn't know she was Dutch. You know what else is typically Dutch? Making money. So in the interest of us being able to earn a few bucks, here's an ad break. We'll be back soon. So during the midst of all these human foibles between the son and grandsons of Charlemagne, plus random occurrences of Vikings, life in our deer swamp 
continued on its merry way, with Mother Nature also doing what Mother Nature does and flooding a lot of the whole place every now and then. On the day after Christmas in the year 838, according to the Annales Zantenses, a tornado struck, with the high winds pushing the sea into Friesland. The water took everything which stood in its path. Imagine being a Frisian peasant, happily and dryly milking your cows on top of your dwelling mound, when all of a sudden, a giant wave, a tornado-driven tsunami, crashes into your swamp, carries off your cows, your house, all of your cheese, and drowns you and everyone else in your village. That would have absolutely sucked. A guy called Prudentius of Troyes gives us the oddly specific number of 2,437 deaths in this disaster. As ever, the threat of sudden death by drowning would have remained a priority for the lowlanders, much more so than whether someone called Charles Louis, another Louis, Pepin or Lothar was claiming to be their ruler. What would be worse? A storm and its rising waters, or a Viking raid? I would personally take my chances in the storm, to be honest. Rather try and swirl around, hopefully avoiding being hit by hurling flotsam, than take on hordes of furious men screaming in a foreign, albeit distantly related, tongue as they leap over the whales of their awesome and terrifying ships to come and pillage your village. This is a reality that people across Europe faced for many years. The most famous Viking figure in the Netherlands was a Dane called Rorik of Dorestad, who earned that title by being the one to best Vike Dorestad, which he did, along with Utrecht, in 850. Before that, however, he and his brother Harold, who made himself at home around Friesland, had found a way to implant themselves in the lowlands. Lothar I, in his war against his father, Louis the Pious, had employed the services of the Norsemen to raid the Frisian territories that were under Louis's rule. When Louis ended up just dying on his nice little island, Rorik and Harold were given legitimized holdings by Lothar as payment for their work. A lot is about to happen, and in the meantime, our Viking friends are building their own local power bases in the northern lowlands. But we'll come back to them in a bit. After the death of Louis the Pious, Lothar, his son, who had actually been co-emperor with his father and with whom he'd been fighting civil wars against, which, yes, is very confusing, but he pulled a classic older brother move and when his father died just told everyone that he was in charge of everything claiming that really, he was the lord of the entire empire his father had ruled. In equally classic brotherly fashion, however, the younger two, Charles, better known as the Bald, who was king of Aquitaine, and Louis, better known as the German, who was king of Bavaria, ganged up on their older brother. They made an alliance with each other and together beat him up at the Battle of Fontenoy in 841. After being beaten up by his two younger brothers, Lothar ran back to Aachen and started raising a new army, which then spurred his brothers in turn to swear the Oaths of Strasbourg. In these oaths, Charles the Bald and Louis the German 
accused their brother of all the usual things, burning, pillaging, murdering, claiming that he was not fit to be emperor, and they swore allegiance to each other against him. What makes the Oaths of Strasbourg fascinating is that they were written down in three different languages, medieval Latin, as well as the vernacular of the kingdoms both men ruled, Old Gallo-Romance and Old High German. These last two are the prototypes of the modern-day French and German languages. It reads like a really early European Union document, but instead of being written by bureaucrats, was written by murderous half-brothers. Lothar was unable to withstand the might of both of his brothers, and after a bit of negotiation on another island in a river, this time in France, they agreed the conditions of what would become known as the Treaty of Verdun. And guess what these Franks agreed upon? That's right, they divided the old empire of Charlemagne and then of Louis the Pious into three different kingdoms, much as it was under Frankish custom. Couldn't they just have done this beforehand without all the fighting? Charles the Bold became the king of West Francia, Lothar became the king of Middle Francia, and Louis the German became the king of, wait for it, East Francia. But Lothar had a problem in Middle Francia. Those Norsemen in the northern lowlands, Rorik and Harold, whose usefulness to him had by now run dry. So Lothar had Rorik and Harold labelled as a disgrace in 844, after which they were charged with treason and put into prison. According to the Annales Fuldenses of 850, Harold died, but Rorik escaped, made his way to Saxony, lived for a few years, and came out of it with a new loyalty to Louis the German, the ruler of East Francia. He then went about raiding some of the Frisian holdings of Lothar, before sailing up the River Rhine and taking Utrecht and Dorestad. The Annales Bertiniani records, quote, Rorik, who had recently defected from Lothar, raised whole armies of Norsemen with a vast number of ships and laid waste to Frisia and the islands of Betuva and other places in that neighborhood by sailing up the Rhine and the Val. Lothar, since he could not crush him, received him into his allegiance and granted him Dorestad and other counties, end quote. Thus did Rorik become known to history as Rorik of Dorestad. He made himself such a nuisance that Lothar, himself wrought with other way more pressing issues, just gave him what he wanted, rather than exerting the energy needed to remove him. Lothar's main pressing issue was that Middle Francia was pretty much doomed from the beginning. Although he was able to keep the fancy title of Roman Emperor, the lands he got were in the most precarious position, running south-north from Italy to the lowlands. The Alps ran right across Middle Francia's bottom third, southwest to northeast. It was a kingdom which on either side was neighboured by the domains of his two younger brothers, two hungry leaders who had literally sworn oaths of allegiance with each other against Lothar just a few years earlier. It had no good natural borders on its east or west, and thus was vulnerable from the get-go on both sides. If it was a risk game, 
and most of your forces were stationed here, you'd need to be rolling sixes, and you'd probably have to also be holding Australia. But Lothar didn't roll sixes, nor did he hold Australia. Unfortunately, for any prospect of Middle Francia winning this game of risk, Lothar died just 12 years after the Treaty of Verdun, and you'll never guess what, upon doing so, his empire split itself up between his three sons in 855. These parts were now Lotharingia in the north, that's our part, Burgundy in the middle, and Italy, which was in, yep, Italy. In 861, a guy with an epic name, Baldwin the Iron Arm, ran away with the daughter of Charles the Bold, the ruler of West Francia. Life for women in these times would have been tough, given that they were just used as pawns to be traded between feudal lords, binding potential rival families closer together. Judith had been married to a man named Ethelwolf, the king of Wessex, when she was just 13, as a way to bring the rulers of Wessex and West Francia together against their mutual enemy, the Vikings. When Ethelwolf died two years later, she was then forced to marry his son, Ethelbald, which must have been rather awkward. Ethelbald marrying the now 15-year-old Judith actually caused uproar, unlike when his father had married her when she was 13. This is because, technically, after her first marriage, Ethelbald was her son, she his mother, and now they were also husband and wife. Welcome to the Middle Ages. Fun for the whole family. After Ethelbald also died, Judith was childless, twice widowed, and not yet even 18 years old. Presumably stoked with how her life had thus far turned out, things only got better when her dad, Charles the Bald, sent her to a monastery in West Francia to await his arranging of yet another marriage. Enter Baldwin Iron Arm, however who had other plans. He promptly carried her away to Flanders to be secretly married. Although the record suggests they ran away together, it's still got to be said, this poor girl. Charles the Bald was completely furious at his daughter for eloping with Baldwin Ironarm. He sent a letter to our old mate, Rorik of Dorestad, which deeply implored that Rorik not give any refuge to the now enemies of the king. The nature of the letter has been suggested to show that Rorik was pretty powerful indeed, if Charles was so concerned about what he might do in this situation. Kings in Europe now had a relatively new and powerful tool to use against people who angered them, and that was to ask the Pope for their immediate excommunication. Charles did just this, Mr. and Mrs. Ironarm, however, instead of fleeing further north into the lowlands towards Rorik, had answered their excommunication by going to Rome and begging forgiveness of the Pope, Nicholas I, which he duly granted. This is another interesting part of the story, as the Game of Thrones that would also unravel over the following centuries would always contain the friction of power that came between the temporal rulers in the shape of kings, princes, counts, and dukes, and the spiritual rulers, whose authority emanated from one man in Rome. Charles the Bold 
was overruled by the Pope's consent to the marriage between Judith and Baldwin Ironer, and was pretty much forced to give his own approval, albeit begrudgingly. As a dowry, he granted Baldwin feudal rights to the territory of Flanders. He would rule it from a castle that he had built in Ghent, and the brand new county of Flanders was now firmly on the path of history. Two years after this whole episode, the King of Burgundy died at the age of 18 with no heirs. So his brothers, the kings of Lotharingia and Italy, ate up his portion. Now in the remnants of Middle Francia, we had Lotharingia in the north and Italy in the south. The whole thing just gutted and weakened by Frankish custom. The king in Italy at this point was technically the emperor, but still his uncles Charles and Louis were ruling their eastern and western much stronger kingdoms, opportunistically taking parts of whatever they could, whenever they could. In 869, a great opportunity for them to take a bunch of lands arose when Lothar II, king of Lotharingia, also died. Although his brother, the king of Italy, was his legitimate heir, he was too busy fighting Islamic forces in the south of Italy. So Charles the Bald and Louis the German went in and split up Lotharingia between themselves in something called the Treaty of Meersen in 870, which replaced the Treaty of Verdun. Following this, the Annales Bettiniani reports that after Meersen, Charles the Bald, quote, went to the palace of Nijmegen to hold discussions with the Norseman Rorik, whom he bound to himself by treaty, end quote. So, throughout the upheaval that was the Carolingian fraternal infighting, Rorik managed to continue his presence and power in the lowlands, switching allegiances as it suited him, like a Scandinavian Machiavelli. Scandiavelli. <laughs> West and East Francia now bordered each other. In our favourite little swamp, this great division went right through it along the River Meuse, which means that the medieval foundations for the major modern nation-states of Europe in France and Germany, West Francia and East Francia, had at its dividing point cities such as Liège and Maastricht in today's Belgium and the Netherlands. In 875, the King of Italy, whose inheritance Charles the Bald and Louis the German had taken for themselves, but who officially still held the title of Emperor, also died. Charles the Bald snapped up his kingdom and his title. A year later, East Francia set off down the same path as all those Frankish territories before it, when Louis the German died, and his sons took their portions. When Charles the Bald died a year after that, his territory was also split up. Are you starting to get the idea that perhaps devolution is actually a really terrible strategy in the power play games of geopolitics? In a period of fewer than 10 years, the two major states that existed at the Treaty of Meersen had been divided up completely, which meant that once more, Europe was at the whim of a bunch of brotherly squabbles. Some of these new rulers died in battle, some of illness, and others by causes such as hunting accidents and accidental defenestrations. But essentially, by 884, strangely enough, all of the now rulers amidst the grandchildren great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of Charlemagne, who ruled across his former empire, have pretty much all done just that. Died. 
after there remained one man to once again rule it all, a single united Frankish empire, one of the great-grandchildren of Charlemagne and the son of Louis the German, with maybe the best name in our series yet, Charles the Fat. But alas, Charles was not the man he might have been destined to be. He was not popular, and he was seen as spineless. In 882, he attempted to push the Vikings out of the Low Countries with an attack on the lands which, previously controlled by Rorik of Dorostad, were now the domains of a different Norseman, a guy called Godfrey Sea King. Godfrey Sea King not only eclipsed Rorik in the awesome namestakes, but he was presumably a rather terrifying character since the records say that once Charles reached his fortifications, quote, his courage failed him. Through the intervention of certain men, he managed to reach an agreement with Godfrey and his men on the following terms, namely that Godfrey would be baptized and would then receive Frisia and the other regions that Rorik had held, end quote. This gave Godfrey seeking a large tract of land on the coast of West Frisia, known as Kenamralan and he was granted the title of Duke of Frisia. Lord Seeking was also integrated into the power hierarchy of the area by being allowed to marry Gisela, one of the daughters of Lothar II. I guess this is a case of keeping your friends close, but your enemies closer. It must have been difficult for the nobles of the former kingdom of Lotharingia to see a Norseman, one of those people who had been responsible for so much devastation throughout their lands in the last 50 years, be granted such a position. But Godfrey Seeking did not get that name by being happy to sit around in Friesland, sucking up to feudal overlords. He didn't seem motivated to protect the Low Countries from further raids by Vikings. He also complained that his land wasn't very good, especially not for growing grapes, which he knew flourished further south. In 885, Godfrey sent some Frisian nobles to Charles the Fat with a list of demands, saying he couldn't be relied on anymore if they weren't met. These nobles returned to Godfrey with an invitation from Charles to come and discuss these matters further. At this meeting, Godfrey was treacherously murdered, and one of the nobles who had been delivering the messages between him and the emperor, a local Frisian man named Gerolf, took over his lands in West Frisia. Whether or not he was part of the murder conspiracy is unknown, but he definitely benefited from it, as Gerolf is known as the founder of the House of Holland. From this point on, the Viking presence in the Low Countries, though not yet finished completely, would begin to fade. So Emperor Charles the Fat was treacherous, cowardly, pretty weak, and had no popular heirs. He lost all support in East Francia and gave up his power in 888 after being challenged by his nephew, Arnulf, which is a refreshingly different name at this stage. He went off to go and die in some place nice, the empire split apart for good, and the regions across Charlemagne's now terminally divided empire would varyingly elect their own kings. Within a couple of hundred years, the rulers of these areas would be calling themselves the King of France, and the Holy Roman Emperor. These territories, which are basically France and Germany, would not again be united under the same ruler in a way until Napoleon Bonaparte came along in the early 1800s. 
If you think about it, much of the history of Western Europe that followed, however, would come as a direct result of these two nations fighting with each other over the land at their border, like two brothers unable to grow out of a childhood fight over who can rule the treehouse. As regards our lowlands, when the empire dissolved after he who was fat gave up power, the division between France and Germany was the River Scheldt, running out into the North Sea, being a part of the lowland delta. The county of Flanders was given to the French crown, while the rest of the low countries became a part of the Duchy of Lotharingia, under imperial suzerainty. Forgive us for getting ahead of ourselves a little, but Belgium today is a polycultural nation. Between Wallonian French, Flemish, Dutch, and a bit of German, there's a mix that speaks directly to this entire Game of Thrones series of princely maneuvers and machinations that we've been talking about in this episode. In the interest of the history of the Netherlands, which despite the fact that this episode is stretched all across the continent, this is all still crucial stuff. Our little swamp is as geographically divided as ever by the Rhine and the other rivers. But now, varying cultural influences will also bear weight. The French in the south and the Germans to the east. We have not paid much heed to it yet, but when the various kingdoms across the English Channel also unite under the English and then the British crowns, the lowlands would then be right smack bang in the middle of the three biggest powers in Europe. Finally, coming back to those great plains that we spoke about at the beginning of this episode, which run through France and Germany, they would not cease to see countless armies marching up and down them. So often when that happened, it would be in the lowlands, and particularly the part that would become Belgium, that those armies would march upon each other. Gigantic world-shaping battles which would decide the future course of Europe at various stages, such as Waterloo and Ypres, they were fought in this muddy little place for that reason. We've got plenty to go through before we get anywhere near those events, but let it simply be said that the blueprint for Western European geopolitics to come can very much be found amidst the foundation of Charlemagne's empire and then the fraternal power struggles of those who inherited it from him. As East and West Francia became more powerful, it was always the bit in between them that became the flashpoint and which had to be mediated over in treaties such as Verdun and Meersen. Right there, at the very heart of it all, as always, were the lowlands. And that's where we are going to leave it for today. Once more, different powerful entities are controlling varying regions within the lowlands. And next, we are going to get stuck into how this played out across the 9th to 11th centuries. If you thought there were a ton of odd names during the rise of the Franks, then you're in for a treat in the next episode of History of the Netherlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.